Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the Feelin' Film Podcast, where we get together weekly for a fun, emotional focus and sometimes insightful, in-depth movie conversation. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend, co-host, and confirmed very real boy, Patrick. I will not lie, so my nose won't grow. I'm here. It's good to be here. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that would be awkward because it would like poke into the screen or the camera yeah. or the mic yeah. and just cause all sorts of chaos. <laughs> you couldn't be a podcaster who lied if you were Pinocchio. Needs to find yeah. another job. Yeah. Crap, I lied again. Sorry. <laughs> my bad. Readjust my camera. Well, this week we are digging into Netflix's newest release and strong awards contender, uh, Guillermo del Toro's stop-motion, dark fantasy, animated reimagining of the Pinocchio story. You can watch it now from your couch, and you should. So if you haven't seen it yet, just push pause on the podcast player and come back after you have, because we are going to spoil it thoroughly from here on out. All right, Patrick. I want to get your brief overall thoughts on this and I'll lead with mine uh, because I did not do an FF plus spoiler free review of this one. So I've never really talked about it before. I've been sitting on this for a while now, several weeks we got to screen it and I reacted not quite as highly as quite a few people have. So uh, this movie is getting a ton of praise People are calling it the best animated film of the year, an absolute masterpiece, and, and just in, there's a lot of love for Del Toro in general, I think, and I have been lower on some of his most recent films, including the one that won Best Picture that I did not really care for at all, and last year's Nightmare Alley. I think his movies are interesting and very good, usually, or at, at least... I would say captivating to watch, but I don't know that they're always my cup of tea. So there are elements of the Pinocchio reworking here that really worked for me and some that didn't. First and foremost, stop motion animation, as most of our listeners should know, is something that we both really, really adore in pretty much all forms. We are big Leica fans for that very reason. And I really loved getting to see some new stop motion animation here. It looked different. It was unique. I liked the design changes. I liked the voice cast of uh, incredible amount of talent and just A-list actors pretty much for every single character in this film, except Pinocchio himself, which was a, a kid who had never done voice acting before. Wild like thing to throw together, right? It's like Kate Blanchett, Christoph Waltz, Ewan McGregor, and then this kid off the street, you know, like you're Pinocchio. So uh, it was, that was pretty interesting. I, he did a great job. Done me. Don't, don't, I'm not knocking the performance of Pinocchio's voice actor. It, it was okay. But I, you know, really enjoyed it. I thought that there was a lot thrown together in this idea wise. And on an individual level, each of those things tended to work for me, and I'm, I'm excited to talk through each of them individually. But as a cohesive whole, I felt like Del Toro maybe bit off a little more than he could chew, and it turned into a bit of a longer, drawn-out story and wasn't keeping me quite as engaged as I had hoped because it needed to deal with all of these different things. It had to hit the emotional beats of fathers and sons it had to deal with the political fascist angle that he likes to put in all of his movies and play through that it had to deal with us kind of double antagonists which was a little bit of a unique thing for this and then you had this surreal fantastical you know death and rebirth element of it as well when he would go into wherever he went uh, purgatory i guess and then come back through the sands of time so uh, you know there, i liked a lot about it and overall i enjoyed it but i didn't find it to be anything that that really blew me away so that's kind of where i'm going to be coming from for our conversation just wanted to get your 
initial overall thoughts? Well, it was definitely a refreshing take on what is seemingly a Disney character. I had to remind myself that Pinocchio, one, is in the public domain, and two, is not a Disney character. I knew Pinocchio because of the 1942, 52, whatever Disney movie that is famous and has now spawned yet another live action carbon copy is what I'm going to call it now, because (laughs) this is what we've gotten. (laughs) And this is not going to be a Disney live action bashing podcast, I promise. But I know we got that this year with Tom Hanks and, you know, with with Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks, you think, okay, yeah, just that's a silver bullet right there. Clearly was not, according to a lot of the uh, the critics and the fans, I say fans, the audiences, the main audiences. I never saw it, wasn't really interested in seeing it. And so when Del Toro's Pinocchio was coming out, it was interesting. I thought visually it's going to be something. <laughs> and it reminded me a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's um, animated movie that now escapes me. The same kind of animation style. Uh, must love dog, not must love dogs, but do- uh, doggy island, La- island, doggy island, doggy island. Sorry, I can't remember. It, it, was, it was dogs and islands. I did that, but and and fantastic kind of, Mr. Fox too. But yes, yes, <laughs> I yes. Gotcha. But more, but more, but more so. I was, I was drawn I to Isle of Dogs in terms of the way in which the the characters were lit and, and the way in which they moved. I mean, what I'm finding as we move more into a higher digital realm of filmmaking stop motion is becoming more refined. So if you, if you watch animated stuff, stop motion animation from the 1970s and eighties, there's definitely less frames per second. And if you haven't watched the special 30 minute documentary that accompanies this movie on Netflix, you should, because even as they're telling the story, we see, how many actual shots go into a single like three to four second sequence this thing took 15 years to make Aaron. 15 yeah. years it's unbelievable. that's dedication that's good night oppie dedication right there and and to me just from an artistic standpoint that deserves the accolades that it's getting because of the fact that you're putting in the work to make something visually look great on top of that what I liked about this is the fact that it stayed more true to the original 1883 story, The Adventures of Pinocchio, by I think you pronounce him Colodi, Carlo Colodi. Uh, I got his Florence. name. Yeah, I I don't remember, but Carlo is actually the young boy that dies. Yes, Geppetto's original yeah. son is named after him, the original author. Yeah. So watching this, it was really great to see what is seemingly a more adaptive version of the original story of this character, as opposed to the Disney treatment. Nothing wrong with the Disney treatment. I mean, if you're going to do it, you know, big and boastful, do it Disney. And, you know, I got no strings on me. I'm still hearing these songs in my head, even after listening to these, these songs, but it was really great to see what ironically is not a, an original tale. It's a retelling. It's a visual retelling of this original story but it comes at a time when I think we long for these these IPs to feel original, and we want more original stories. And so what we get is a familiar character that we're drawn to because we know about him from the fame at Disney, but the telling of his story feels like, ah, this is the real story of Pinocchio. This is like real life with Pinocchio as opposed to like the <laughs> the sanitized the version. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I know you talked to me before about it's got some dark elements, you know, watch it before you watch it with your son, which I definitely did. I don't know that he's quite ready for some of the things that happened. I had some kind of up moments here where at the beginning you got Carlo dying and the way Carlo dies is like I don't know that he's ready for that. But it sets a great tone throughout the rest of the movie. And you mentioned the length. I, I think, yes, it could have been tightened a bit, but I really, really liked all of the components and how they work together, where you have this character, Pinocchio, played by a no-namer. I did think his performance was a bit wooden, but, you know, I got over it. And oh, come on. Is that, was that on purpose? I, okay. Yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> you teed me up. I was ready to just hit that driver. Anyway, no, he was great. I thought everybody was fantastic in this. 
But I think all of those subplots, which you could have picked one and run with it, expanded on it a little bit, they all seem to work together in terms of what Del Toro's story was trying to tell about exploring what is my purpose in relationship to these people. So you have almost three different father figures in a sense, either directly or indirectly. And how is Pinocchio being acted upon? How is he being treated in relationship to these? All three of them have a motive. They all have a selfish motive. Geppetto wants a son. (laughs) He wants Carlo. But if he can't have Carlo, he'll have this kid, Pinocchio. And then you have the, the circus entertainer who wants profit. And then you have the, the, the general who wants a weapon. So there's motive in all of these things. And how we see Pinocchio dealing with that is really something that I liked being attached to. I liked seeing him walk through this adventure. And while, yes, I think it could have been shorter in some places, I felt like we needed to be able to kind of live in these moments with him so that we could feel more empathy so we can understand the fantasy element of it, of coming back to life. I love the logic of it. I say logic in a fantasy movie. I love the way that works, but it did feel a little out of place because you're getting a supernatural component that I wasn't really attached to as much as I was the story of Pinocchio. But I say that knowing that Pinocchio's life would have would not have happened if it not were if it were not for a supernatural component. So I can appreciate it. I felt like maybe it was a little too much. Um, I got a little bit more interested in, okay, well, at some point, how many times does he have to die before he actually like never comes back? Is there a is there a rule there? There's like a time travel thing. Like, okay, what are the rules? And so I got kind of half an explanation of that. But I think that was the only thing that I was hung up on. Everything else I thought was, was I said, my, my response was lovely. I thought watching how these characters interacted, watching the visuals, it was just great. Even the songs themselves were very much just fun and very much appropriate for each scene that they were in. And they weren't long. It wasn't like we had these like two and a half, three minute numbers besides the ones where Pinocchio is performing. All of the musical numbers made me feel like I wasn't watching a musical. I was watching a music. I was watching a movie with musical components dropped in. So for me, overall, I really liked it. I'm glad you liked the music because somebody has to. I did not. That's one of the big detractors for me was actually that I didn't like it at all. I pretty much could not find any of the songs very enjoyable. They all seemed off to me and. The, I think they're consistent. I will give them that. There's a stylistic consistency in the way they are performed. Again, it it's funny, it, it punny, but it almost seems wooden the way some of the songs are performed to me. And they weren't the kind of songs that I could latch onto and sing or hum later or find myself wanting to listen to a soundtrack for, you know, they were, you're right that they make sense though, in context of the movie. And so I'm glad that they worked for you. I am. They just didn't, for me, that was one of the things that held it back a bit. So how I'm trying to think of how the best way to approach this is, but I think we'll just start with some of the different relationships and, and we'll just go from there. It's all going to merge together, but we have the, opening of the movie which is so unique in that we get an actual backstory for Pinocchio. Now I haven't rewatched the original Disney film recently to confirm, but I'm pretty sure that we don't get a lot of this. That we just kind of start with Geppetto as a woodmaker and then a Pinocchio that comes to life via a fairy or whatever it is. And there's no but there's no son and there's no tragic backstory for him. And so I really liked that, and as you were saying yourself, I think that that added a ton to the emotional connection we have with the character as we move forward. I still get a little weirded out because Geppetto looks more like Pinocchio's grandfather to me than a father. He he looks so old. <laughs> I just don't understand <laughs> yeah. the reasoning there. But and and I, I want to know where his mom is and what what is going on and there's I have all these questions, but I liked 
the way that we set that up. And it makes sense as to why he would want to replace Carlo in some capacity um, because he has this this feeling of loss, right? Which is, I think, something that is easy for all of us to relate to, whether it's a loved one in our lives or a pet. Even there's always that sense of this person was here and filled this specific space in my life, in my heart, and now they're gone and, and there's this void. And what am I going to do to cope with that? And so if you're a woodmaker, you make things out of wood. And so you make a boy. And I thought that the way that this progressed with him specifically trying to teach Pinocchio was interesting to see juxtaposed against Podesta, the government official, Mr. Mussolini's whipping boy, I guess, and then his son, Candlewick, and how he is parenting his son, right? Because he's taking the very strict rules are rules are rules. We follow the rules. We follow Mussolini. You know, this is how it is. And Geppetto is trying to, I, I guess, honestly, give a little bit more of a leeway to Pinocchio and an understanding of him being young and brand new to the world essentially he's like literally like a baby because he just got born and and i really liked seeing how they were different in trying to teach obedience and the purpose of obedience as well like in geppetto's case it was almost always related to safety right it was like don't do this because you might catch on fire and go up in flames because you're made of wood <laughs> you know of and the other guy is like <laughs> do this because every other kid does this and i told you this is what you do um and so i thought that that aspect of it was really interesting and and i liked that we got to see if we were going to have the government officials and antagonist the fact that he had a son candlewick and we got to see their relationship and the jealousy of Candlewick, well, Jealousy Candlewick had for Pinocchio, um, I thought that was really moving. Yeah, I, I think that that pairing of both of those father-son relationships was really interesting because of everything that you mentioned. I also like the fact that we see a motivation, a different motivation from both Geppetto and from um, uh, from Podesta with regard to their their sons one feels more like it has a larger like picture with podesta he's like he's grooming his son to be the next soldier he wants to live kind of almost vic not vicariously through his son but he wants this legacy he wants okay i'm going to teach you everything that i know because i want you to be successful because you're carrying the weight of a country and it reminds me a lot i recently watched chernobyl about this sense of community that the Russian community had with their nation. And I felt like we got a little bit of this. I think that's one of the things I liked about this movie is it's set in a time period where Mussolini is the the ruling person. There's a dictatorship. There's this kind of overwhelming sense of like, all right, if you're not going to follow these rules, you're going to be shot. And watching Podesta with his son, it's a great stark contrast with Geppetto and Pinocchio because they both want for their sons. They just want for different reasons, where Geppetto is trying to understand this. He's like, I've got a wooden boy now, which, by the way, if we're just going to go ahead and say this is definitely a fantasy movie, because there is this ultimate acceptance early and quickly that this wooden puppet is, is alive, that's talking and moving around. So given that, you have that component where Geppetto is looking at Pinocchio and he's trying to figure out only what he knows from his relationship with his dead son. How did I treat him? How did we have that working relationship? And now he's trying to kind of cast that onto Pinocchio and what I think we see because of that great opening where we see his uh relationship with with his son, we see him only knowing what to do based off of that. And so it creates this interesting dichotomy between him and Podesta. I don't think either of them are doing anything wrong. I just think that you have these two paths that are going 
these these guys are going down and the I won't call it collateral damage, but the the victims in this or the 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 ones that are getting kind of thrust upon are Candlewick and Pinocchio. And it, it makes it makes the moment that they have at the top of the tower when they're doing capture uh-huh. the flag so great because they're not enemies. They have found something in common where they actually are doing something together. And of course that leads to the tension between uh, between Podesta and Chadwick, not Chadwick, <laughs> Candlewick. And I, I think that just watching, if if this was the only thing going on, and I think this speaks to what you were talking about, how there's a lot of subplots happening. If this was explored a lot more, it's a strong component because it really does raise those questions. How do you raise your child in a way that is valuable to them and to you? Because Geppetto is not looking for a legacy. Geppetto is looking for someone to take care of and someone to take care of him. He wants to be a caretaker. I have a relative, a stepmother-in-law, who is sort that's of... a lot of words. That's a lot of words because it's a complicated relationship. <laughs> this is my wife's dad's wife. <laughs> so stepmother and so stepmother-in-law, you know, doing the math, the verbal math there. But she has this compulsion to be a caretaker. She is in her 70s, and she and her husband just got a kitten. And I sound really morbid when I say this, but are you really going to be around long enough for this cat to live a full life with you as its owner? Maybe they will. They're not in great health. They're not doing much to maintain great health. So I'm going to be a pessimist or the realist and say, not the case. But I asked my wife, why would she do that? And she said, without even skipping a beat, it's because she needs to take care of something. Geppetto's the same way. Geppetto misses his son. Yes, there's a tragedy there. There's a hole in his heart. But I think there's a part of him that wants to take care of someone, a son. And Pinocchio's kind of thrown it in his face and kind of screwed that up because he's not his son. He is, he's not Carlo. He's Pinocchio. Contrast that with Podesta, who has his son under his thumb and yet it's not as fulfilling because Podesta's only value is going to be will my son be successful and the height of that is when he asks Candlewick to shoot Pinocchio and he can't and at that point he is now nothing to his father which is it's just really that that whole subplot was really powerful so i agree wholeheartedly and that is what i was saying about competing tones and where personally i wish we would have just gone all out and let go of the count volpe sideshow because that's more in keeping with the traditional pinocchio story him getting sold to a puppeteer and and really playing into that idea of him being this wooden boy that there's a a literal puppet master <laughs> that is competing for him and while I enjoyed those scenes and for what they were on their own, and I understand they were kind of like driving the movement of the story because that's how you get Pinocchio on the road so he can have an adventure. The Podesta and the fascism storyline, if you'd gone straight, I mean, I, and I also understand like I, my criticisms here are personal because I know I, I understand very much why we kept both. We want to keep a sense of the traditionalism here and. You want to keep it, give it a lighthearted element. And those moments are much more lighthearted with Volpe. He's a funny antagonist versus Podesta, who is like a scary antagonist because he's Mussolini's kind of, uh, you know, lackey. And but I would have loved if we, like you said, explored that fully because, yeah, it leads to that great, great scene. What you were referring to where they're doing capture the flag and. They and, and it comes after they've had that great conversation in bed the night before, um, which is very memorable to me. Uh, just from my de- my months and months in boot camp, like that's what it was like. <laughs> and um, and you're having those kind of tough conversations. And you're making certain, you know, friends with people you may have considered not to be anything like you, but now you're in a situation where you are thrust and put together and treated as equals. And I liked all of that. I also like that in that moment, they know very well, I think intellectually, it's explained to them 
there can be only one winner. And it's explained very, very clearly before they start. And so they know that intellectually, but the fact that they end up going for this shared win, and it broke my heart with how much honesty and naivety they go to Podesta at the end, and they're like genuinely saying, believing, like, why can't we tie? Like, they truly, it's so indicative of them still being kids, I think, in that moment, because it shows you they don't quite have that adult capacity yet. They are not grown up enough to understand why there cannot be a tie, that you can't just do that. And so it's it hurts because you understand again just how young they are. And sometimes that doesn't always come through in the adventure aspects of the story. And so I really thought that that was expertly done. Um, <laughs> I, I laughed because there was a couple of inconsistencies. I, I called them inconsistencies. One was early on the townspeople when they first see Pinocchio and he like walks up into the church all, you know, yeah. just chilling. <laughs> and they're like, it's a demon. And then the next scene, it's like, go to school. And I was like, what is these people like flipped a switch from you're a demon from hell to it's cool. Go hang out with our kids because that's what you need to do in a, a second. And then the other one was Pinocchio literally catches on fire and mm -hmm. is just chilling. He he like doesn't even rel realize he's burning to a pulp <laughs> when he's having his hot chocolate, which he really likes. By the way, sidebar, uh, they sent me a cool box from Netflix for this movie. And it included some actual hot chocolate packets, like a Swiss Miss version, but it's it's from Italy. So like legitimately from Italy, everything is in Italian. I had to use Google Lens on my phone to take a picture of it and have it translate in the image so that we could figure out the directions. And then we had to transpose the directions with the amounts because they were in whatever, not is it metric that we use or is it? Which one is which? We don't use metric. We use the other okay. one. Okay. So we had, to, that is. we had to change it because it was in the other one <laughs> in order to make this hot chocolate. But it was phenomenal hot chocolate. So thanks, Netflix. Uh, anyway, cool tie-in to the movie. But when in that scene, he's like burning and it's fine, right? He doesn't really even acknowledge anything's happening. But then at the end, when Podesta threatens to burn him at the stake like a witch... He's like freaking out as if it is going to hurt him. And so I found that to be a little bit inconsistent. I think it probably is meant to be showing us that he now has gone through all of this life and death rebirth. And so he understands that if he is to die, I, I, I'm starting to think maybe it's less about pain and more about he knows that if he goes away again, he's got to wait a longer amount of sand time before he comes back but anyway there were little things like that that were a little off to me i don't know why but just bringing those up the what did you think about count volpe though so we obviously both like the podesta and candlewick comparison and, and how that played into it did you like the other antagonist plot line well that's a good burning question that you had earlier and i just wanted to address that by saying that he uh you just come <laughs> so on, I wait, did it again no um no i agree i think i think his motives were because he's becoming more aware in the fact that he sees a bigger picture and we see that reflected in when he has to save geppetto where he's like i need to i need to go back and he doesn't want to die because of that actual thing now moving on to your next question that has nothing to do with fire i i was very entertained by it and i think again on its own, it has some merit. You have this idea of this carnival guy who is essentially e exploiting Pinocchio for his own personal gain. And I think it's consistent with the theme of exploitation in these three male figures in his life. And I think that's why it works for me, because while I think I think the whole bit with um with uh with Podesta is the strongest I think this sequence is just as consistent because of the fact that all three need Pinocchio needs all three of these little stories these adventures these kind of experiences to be able to understand 
what it means to be valued or devalued or valued for specific reasons. And I think what we get to is that I won't call it a great bow on the end of the whole story, but he sees Geppetto as being, if I'm going to be valued by someone, it's going to be Geppetto because of his purity, because of the reasons why. And of course, we get more of that with Geppetto because he now realizes that, as he says, I wanted you to be like my son, and instead, you need to just be who you are. So going back to uh, to Vol- uh, Count Volpe, I think that this sequence serves as traditional. I think it does serve as familiar. And I think if you removed it, it would have felt a little too distant from what we know as the familiarity of this this character. Because looking at the visuals of this, Aaron, if you took that component out, all we would have left is a wooden character whose nose grows when he lies. Those are two familiar pieces that we know from the original thing. Because Jiminy Cricket, it's Sebastian. He has that he has a different role entirely. We have Geppetto, whose motives are completely different. We have Podesta, who doesn't show up in the Pinocchio that we know. And I think that Count Volpe provides a sense of an anchor for us to say, okay, yeah, I get that. And then we can go to these other places and tie those in in a way that feels consistent without feeling like we're telling three individually independent stories. Although, as I'm watching this, I'm like, man, this would be a cool kind of miniseries. If we did like three to four episodes on you know, Netflix, this would work. You'd be able to flesh out. And the adventures of Pinocchio would eventually resolve themselves as we get to the very end. And so I didn't think it was like, from a link standpoint, I didn't think it was like too long, but I did feel like even the Volpe subplot could have been fleshed out even more because it wasn't just about him cheating Geppetto. I mean, you got to work through that. The monkey who I think sort of talks through the puppets. I think that was what I was. Is, Absolutely. Was that- I definitely think it was talking through the puppets and that was really weird because it doesn't talk any other time. And I was like, okay, you're just wanting to get Kate Blanchett's actual voice in this movie. That's what you're I really, that was Maybe. another inconsistency that annoyed me and, and, and annoyed me. Listeners, I'm not saying these are like reasons to hate the movie. They were just things that, those are the things that I noticed and they mm-hmm. very, very briefly took me out of scenes because I was like, oh, you can talk now? But like the rest of the movie, you're like, you know, and knocking on doors and stuff like, come on. Yeah. But I think what that subplot provides is in a lot of ways, what your dramedies give in terms of levity i just watched the pilot episode of only murders in the building the i think it's hulu uh the hulu series that has uh, steve martin martin short in it and it's great like it's really good but what makes it good is the fact that you have the levity and the comedic timing and the comedic capabilities of both martin short and steve martin but it's wrapped up and surrounded by drama and surrounded by a little bit of mystery And I think that that's what this section is trying to accomplish, to provide a little bit of levity. Because while I wouldn't necessarily put my nine-year-old in front of this movie just yet, I would put him in in the next year. If you took that part out, it's less accessible to a wider audience. It's just just dark (laughs) apart from this. But even that... The consistency is a lighter version of it's like a light brown as opposed to a dark brown. Or if it's black in darkness, it's like a a lighter version of that, like a gray. Yeah, I mean, he's literally making a deal with the devil. Like Volpe is is playing that role. There is a contract (laughs) that he signs and is the terms of service from Apple. Every time you try to update your iPhone, it's like 7000 pages long. And he's just like, cool, whatever. And he gets himself into a bind and he has to pay it off. Right. And I, I like all of the reasoning behind it as well i didn't mind those scenes i thought that they were enjoyable and some of the more interesting fun animation that we got was watching the circus in a you know whatever it is the traveling caravan of oddities um, as it was you know taking place i did think it was i already mentioned you know kind of just a little bit not 
as perfectly connected as I would have liked. You brought up earlier, you were saying something about how, you know, there were these elements of the story that we have to have going forward and carry over from what we remember it as in order for it to be enough of a reworking that it's not something completely different. And one of the things that I found really kind of funny is this idea of his nose growing because there's no explanation for this. It is just a very random part of this entire story that his nose grows when he lies. It There doesn't seem to be a purpose behind this other than to drive plot. And I wondered if you saw that any differently. There is the, the line of dialogue that's catchy that Geppetto says early in the movie and kind of comes back a couple times. Or I guess it's Sebastian. He specifically says later, he's like, Pinocchio taught this back to me. And, you know, oh, no, that's the try your best. And that's the best anyone can do. That's the Sebastian part. But there's a part earlier where Geppetto is teaching Pinocchio. He says, a lie is plain to seize your nose. And the more you lie, the more it grows. And this creates an awesome opportunity for unique animated changes with his nose now becoming a literal tree and honestly saving the day because he does it to where it's like fully extended into like a California redwood tree and they can like get themselves out of the belly of the whale. They left Jonah behind, but okay, we're going to let you let that go. But there's something that kind of held me back here because I kept wondering, I was comparing to thinking of Disney story, right? When you're watching the Disney movie, it's so light and fantastical that you're just kind of like, oh yeah, that's, that's cool. It's about a boy whose nose grows. This shifts things into a much more real and serious world implications and storytelling. And so because of that, I was going, where is my reasoning for your nose growing other than it just to get you out of things? And why is it okay? Why are we giving out the message that it is okay to lie if it serves the purpose that you need it to? Because that is exactly what happens in this movie. They get to the point where he's like, go ahead, Pinocchio. And he's cheering him on as he's lying. And I was just, I was having a problem with that because I was like, what are we doing here? This idea of your nose growing when you lie seems to be something in the, in the early stages of the movie where we're it's normal and we're saying you know this is bad this is an indicator that you've done something wrong don't lie lying is bad but then we get to the point where it's like oh but you know what lying is gonna get us where we want to go so lie your little heart out pinocchio lie 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 because we need you to do it and am i just taking it too serious i just i guess just like rein me back in but but honestly did you did any of that connect for you or were you just away for the ride and just treated it like fantasy and didn't really even skip a beat well i treat i treated it like fantasy because this movie is just grounded in that i mean the moment that geppetto builds this puppet you're asking yourself the question what are you going to do with that thing dude I mean, are you expecting some kind of like crazy, like supernatural entity to come bless this thing and make it come alive? So you and I own too many pop figures to ask that question. This is what I'm saying. My (laughs) office is probably going to, there's going to be a revolt. It's going to be like a woods bright. They're going to, they're going to tie me down. And like, I've got like pop figure Thanos. that's going to like snap me into someplace else. And my office is going to be driven and just ruled by pop figures. This is what's going to happen. But fortunately that won't happen in the real world, in the real world. What I, so at the, we're really kind of suspending our disbelief because yes, this is very much fantasy. Again, going back to the fact that you have people who see this, this puppet as a devil thing and then say, okay, it's cool to go to school. And then you've got other people who just validate his existence. Like nobody's questioning the fact that he's around. There's not, they're not, they're, they're, it's exploitation. It's absolute exploitation. So I would say that that theme of exploitation exists in that moment where he is told, go ahead, lie, get us out of the situation, do it. But I will also say as a way to forgive that, Lying, as you get older, becomes more complex, and there are way, there are times you need to. There are times you need to not tell the truth, because the fact is, 
if I knew tomorrow, if I'm in a big, like powerful uh, position, if I'm the president of the United States and I find out that there's like a half dozen cases of mad cow in the UK, do I just tell the American people, hey, just letting you know, uh, mad cow has reemerged in the UK. I don't know what we're going to tell you, just, but just stay calm. It's okay. It's okay. Again, I'm going back to my experience watching Chernobyl. How do you communicate a message effectively and strategically without freaking the world out, without freaking your community out? It's difficult. And so you have to lie. And I say have to, because the fact is Chernobyl is a great example of what happens when you do lie and continue to try to cover up that lie. Lies eventually become the truth. And that's bad. In this case, I think what the movie is trying to do is it's it's really kind of amplifying exploitation, but it's also amplifying the complexities of what it's like when you start learning how the world works. The fact is, I look at my son and I want to protect him from I want to be Geppetto to my son, but he's going to run into the Podestas. He's going to run into the Count Volpe's in his life, and he's going to have to make decisions. And it can't be because of me, by the way. He can't make them because I am his reason for being happy or he doesn't look to me for validation. As he gets older, he will make decisions that I will find really, really disappointing. And they'll be for his own reasons. He's going to, he's already lied to me. But I think that there are times when lying or when doing something that goes against what's considered morally correct, there's more there's more nuance to it. And so in the case of them trying to escape, the fact is <laughs> he's a mutant. He's got an X power. So his X power is growing that nose. I agree with you. It would have been great to have an explanation. If we're going to get a complex character like Pinocchio, if we're going to explore this, then let's do it. But the fact is the stories of Pinocchio are not complex. They are baked in simplicity to an extent but I think the emphasis of complexity is on the life that he lives and making choices. Again, if you flesh this out in a three to four to five episode series, I think you could probably get more of those questions answered, more of those things that are sort of, you know, pinging you a little bit as terms of like things that might irk you. Those might get fleshed out more. Like we might get an origin story of why the heck does your nose grow? Why does, why don't your eyes get bigger? Why don't your ears get bigger? What What's happening here? Why is it your nose? Why is it when you lie? Why is it not when you uh, get angry? <laughs> so I think that it didn't bother me because the fantasy aspect of it was pretty, it was presented as a simple thing. Although it was incomplete, it was simple. And I just chose to accept the fact that, all right, some you know fairy, wood fairy touched this dude on the, on the chest and now he's alive or seemingly alive, he still wouldn't, and Geppetto accept it, and uh, you've got Podesta accepting it, okay, I'll accept it too, and I'll accept everything else that comes with it, con including, you know, hanging out with the lighthouse inside the belly of this uh, this water beast, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm along for the ride, essentially, but I okay. can see why. That's fair, yeah, no, I, I think when I can have said that I found it, inconsistencies or when I said I think I wrote it in my letterbox review I, I said it has like a mixture of tones that was a little bit tricky for me and that's where I'm getting at with I loved these things individually like all of them all the different elements and it was just the the puzzle pieces didn't quite line up it was like they're a little off center for me when I look at it at all put together uh, because I like going into the purgatory realm and, and and see there's the thing is like you get explanation there she tells you what the rules are of this is how the sand works and every time you go away you're gonna it's gonna take longer and you have to break it but if you break it you become a real boy and therefore you are going to i, I guess not be able to die again like you won't come back if you die the next time um and so i felt like well we get some background story here like we're not getting it over here and let's let's do it all one way but yeah i get it sure. i understand what you're yeah. saying it's funny how I'll, we've started to shift i think whereas i mean i still love movies i think movies for me will always be above series 90 percent of the time simply because i think there is something extremely magical in and of itself of a contained story and actually telling your story 
not stretching it out, not trying to cram everything into it, but just telling a contained story from A to B in two hours. Like, I think that that is such an extreme skill. But there are times when I feel like we've said it several times over this year where it's like, oh, man, this would make for a cool Netflix series um, or this would be neat if we expanded it. But I think you made a good point when you said it it is the adventures of Pinocchio and it would have been neat to see him go on adventures like here's an episode that is him with the carnival. Here's an episode dealing with getting swallowed by the fish. Here's an episode with this Mussolini-esque academy and a whole big different stuff that happens there that really continually fleshes him out. But we get the point. We get all of the the life lessons that come with this. The try your best. And that's the best anyone can do. The idea yeah. of how everything he does is driven by actions of love and not mm-hmm. what is socially acceptable for the time. Yeah. So I think that's the challenge of a movie that has a lot of moving parts when you have packages of stories so love actually as an example you have all of these little pocket stories that eventually converge and overlap with an overlying theme that love actually is all around us that kind of thing if even if it's not as deep even if it's not as something that you're at you know you're into that much i think i think pinocchio this version of pinocchio accomplishes that so i never that's the thing is i think a movie is successful when it tells its story and if that story being told is, let's see these three parts threaded together to tell that thing that everything is driven by love. Yes, it absolutely works. And that's the thing is we see how Pinocchio reacts. He never gets angry. Well, I say he never gets angry. He gets frustrated. He finds ways to get his own little revenge. But we never see him as the perpetrator. We never see him as someone who is trying to do something selfishly. Like ultimately all he is doing is an altruistic act for Geppetto. Everything he is doing while it's driven by curiosity. And I think that's another great component. What, how, how does curiosity lend itself to the life we lead and where does it lead us? Absolutely. Everything comes back to his relationship with Geppetto, you know, going to this carnival he agrees to do it knowing, thinking he is going to get half of his these proceeds, his half, given to Geppetto. When he finds out that's not the case, moral compass, boom, I'm going to have to sabotage this guy's carnival, which, by the way, was really funny. I mean, it's very juvenile. And yes, you're using it poop was, jokes that was funny. I think I saw a fart emoji or a poop emoji come down as a puppet. That was pretty like, wow, okay. But, and, and again, the terseness of this movie, like everything is unapologetic. Like when Mussolini says, okay, those are puppets I didn't like, shoot them all. And we, at that point, I think he shoots everybody, not just <laughs> Pinocchio, but we find out obviously that the count was not dead. Everything is very much direct. Nothing is sort of beaten around the bush and it's only kind of expanded or um, pushed out a little bit because of an explosion. But what I see is that threaded through all of this is those central components that you mentioned about forgiveness and about love and about what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to actually live? Can you live a life if you're a puppet, (laughs) if you're not real? And again, I think that the movie unintentionally sort of short changes some of that stuff, but it gets its point across enough that I can watch it again and really sort of have another discussion in my head about like, oh yeah, let me look at it through the lens of forgiveness. Let me look at it through the lens of altruism or love or exploration or curiosity. I mean, these are little singular words that thematically live in all of these stories of Pinocchio. And I think it lends itself to being able to be watched, you know, more than once to be able to really get that, that fullness on top of just watching it without the dialogue and seeing how these characters move. I mean, I cannot get over the fact that they are beautiful. Like I want these statues. I want Pinocchio sitting on my desk because he's so beautifully made. Geppetto, as old as he looks, as grandfatherly as he looks, he looks amazing. Sebastian looks great. The monkey looks great. Volpe looks great. All these characters are so, they're so 
del toro-esque <laughs> like these are the characters <laughs> very that, much so yes they are i mean it's like this is from the mind of Benicio del toro so i uh I just I love it and I cannot uh, get over how beautiful this movie looks. So it's a multi-layered thing that I think is worthy of the the accolades that it's getting, even though the story itself is not like mind blowing. It's not like, wow, I haven't heard this story before. No, you have. You've just seen it done in a beautiful way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I definitely came up on it a little bit in this second viewing that I did for the podcast. So I I liked it more than I did the first time. And maybe it's one that will continue to grow on me if I, you know, watch it again down the road. But I wholeheartedly have no reservations in agreeing with the animation. I do think that there are times I shouldn't say with the animation, with the character designs. I should I did find a few times where the lack of smoothness in the animation was uh, jarring to me. And I don't know if it's an intentional thing or if it was meant to be on purpose. And I'm not talking about Pinocchio moving like a puppet. I'm saying other characters. There was like a little bit of stutteriness to the movement that I'm not familiar with. Having watched a ton of Leica films, they're just, you don't see the same type of animation smoothing. It seems much more solid there. And so I don't know if that was intentional um in how they wanted to present this um, or if it was just maybe a slightly less experienced studio that has not done it as much and so it's not quite as tightly knit but either way it did stand out just a slight amount to me but the designs are so overwhelmingly amazing like you said that your eyes are just popping out of your head and I, and I love that about it because never in a million years would I have envisioned this Pinocchio you could have I just never would have come up with this idea of of the way that his nose grows in this movie and the way that he loses legs and has to have like new ones built and put onto him right yeah it's a practical neat yeah yeah there's a practicality to to his stuff I mean you've got that mythicalness but there's a there's definitely a practicality to the fact that if you're if your nose is growing and it's made of wood sure, it's going to have leaves on it. And sure, it's going to get stronger. And it blew my mind that, oh, yeah, he can break off his nose because it's not like a limb. It's not going to kill the tree if you tear the limb off. So it makes total sense that I'm asking the question. And when they're inside the belly, I'm like, how is he going to get through this? Is he going to even though he was left behind anyway? <laughs> and then he breaks it off. And just just real quick, I said Benicio <laughs> del Toro. I, I meant to say Guillermo. Guillermo. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> That's the, pretty funny. The, the del Toros. The del Toros get mixed up. Just like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, sorry. So I apologize to anyone who's like, it wasn't Benicio. That guy's crazy. No, it was Guillermo del, del Toro. My bad. You were worried but that Pinocchio yeah, wasn't going to be able to breathe anymore? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> exactly. he's so human. He's so human. Did anybody uh, stand out to you as a favorite in the voice cast? I wanted to ask that before we finished. You know, I really liked Ewan McGregor as Sebastian. And I gosh, think because good. it's he's got a well, first of all, he gets to he gets to attempt to sing twice. I thought that was fantastic that he starts singing the song. and He gets distracted or gets like, well, he gets swallowed the second time. I don't know that he ever gets his moment, but he makes a great narrator. And I think that what else attracts me to his character is the fact that I'm used to Jiminy Cricket. I'm used to the con- let conscience be your guide. And that's not what he was. He was a scribe. He was essentially taking notes on this this kid's life and told this amazing story. His role was enough. And he he didn't talk very much as like in the moment. He was always really just the the narrator that we get to listen to, but I really really liked liked him in this yeah i did too i think he's just so great his voice is so good but i I honestly could not tell you there was a single voice that i did not love i just think del toro was able to pull so many people and we saw this because we watched the special feature which is awesome by the way just one more plug for that 30-minute making of feature ad. These are the things that you get on this. This is why I have restarted 
being a collector of 4K discs in at a higher level because I love watching special features and it's so cool that they were they put this out because a lot of times Netflix's movies don't come out for purchase or it takes forever. This I guarantee will this there will be a criterion edition of this within two years. Like I, I would put money on it right now. So I'll own that. But for now, like it's so neat to have this extra little making of documentary there. And it covers the animation, like you said, the how long it took for the studio to do the work. But it also talks about some of the voice casting. And we get to hear some of these actors say, like, when Del Toro calls, you just say yes. They don't need to know anything. That's the kind of clout he has in the industry with his peers. I actually, while we were recording, just saw a tweet from Stephen King that called Pinocchio magical pure magic you know and so you understand like del toro is not just a director that has a fandom from general viewers but in his own profession people put him on a pedestal (laughs) and i think that is amazing because you get you know there's certain act certain directors that are like that wes anderson has that sort of pull where everybody just wants to work with him right And it's neat because we get to reap the benefits of this cast in very small roles. Some of them like Tim Blake Nelson is the Black Rabbits. But the fact that it's Tim Blake Nelson adds something to that performance or to that that very small thing. Bern Gorman is the priest. Uh, You know, Christoph Waltz is so phenomenal as Count Volpe. And then I mentioned earlier, but you have Kate Blanchett as this monkey that that doesn't even speak like except once or twice in the entire movie it's Kate Blanche she is probably winning best actress this year for her other movie like that's <laughs> crazy that you have her doing a monkey but she just wants to be part of this because she believes in how amazing it is and she believes in Del Toro's storytelling and i i just i find that to be really special yeah and it, it reminds me a lot of you know where we are with with Nick Saban as a as a head coach at Alabama that there's always the criticism again you're going to get the criticism with the praise of a successful person whether it's a coach or a director and you mentioned in the first part of the podcast top part about how there are Del Toro movies that we just don't like and that's okay I mean art is subjective you can like things and not like things there as a fan of Hugh Jackman there are movies that I don't like that he's in because I don't like the movies. I don't want to commit fully and being like, I'm going to watch everything that Hugh Jackman's in. No, I'm not because the movie has to be good and it has to be something that I can, it has to be a pill that I can swallow. And there are movies out there that I just cannot watch. Del Toro is the same way. I can watch this movie and completely enjoy it and get the Del Toro touch and I, and not have to like everything. And I think his success is a lot like that of Nick Saban, that he's going to attract a lot of talented people but not every movie is going to be a winner not every movie is going to be like it's amazing and sometimes when you elevate a director to a place where everything is going to be great until it's proven wrong that can be dangerous i don't think this is one of those movies i think this is one that has enough elements a wide audience appeal a story that's understandable but that has some really interesting elements it feels original, but still feels familiar, has a great voice cast, a fantastic genre of storytelling in terms of stop motion. All those components, I think, come together with his stamp of approval, with his touch that say, yes, this is a Del Toro movie that a lot of people are going to like, and it's probably worthy of the accolades that it's going to get. More stop motion animation is always a good thing. Always, always, yeah. always. Yeah. Well, that'll do it for us on this edition of Feelin' Film. Del Toro brought us The Shape of Water, and next week we're going to be in The Way of Water. James Cameron's Avatar, second Avatar entry, is finally upon us, and we will spend three hours probably underwater, in water, around water. Water was going to be part of something. So I'll make sure not to drink water before I go into this three-hour-plus movie. And hopefully the conversation is going to be just as epic as the movie will be. I've got my IMAX tickets or as close to IMAX as it can be RPX in 3D at my my best friend's request here. So I'm excited to see it. Aaron, I know you're excited to see it. I think you've got tickets twice to go view it. Excuse me, three times. My bad. 
more dedicated than me, I guess. So whatever. All right. Anyway, come back and uh, listen to that conversation. Have a good week, everybody. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.